1981, the queer community-focused newspaper The New York Native published what would become the first-ever article on a strange new disease that seemed to be afflicting community members in the city, what eventually became known as AIDS, but which was, at the time, discussed by medical professionals primarily in terms of its associated diseases, was clinically reported upon for the first time less than a month later five official cases having been documented in an interconnected group of gay men and users of injectable drugs, who came to the attention of doctors for not being inherently immunocompromised, but still somehow contracting a rare type of pneumonia that only really impacted folks with severely impaired immune systems. In subsequent years, doctors started using a range of different terms for HIV and AIDS, calling them at different times and in different contexts the lymphotrophic retrovirus, Kaposi's sarcoma and opportunistic infections, and the 4-H disease, referring to heroin users, hemophiliacs, homosexuals, and Haitians, the four groups that seemed to make up almost all of the confirmed afflicted patients. The acronym GRID, G-R-I-D, for gay-related immune deficiency, was also used for a time, but that one was fairly rapidly phased out when it became clear that this condition was not limited to the gay community, though those earlier assumptions and the terminology associated with them did manage to lock that bias and assumption into mainstream conversation and understanding of AIDS and HIV for a long time, and in some cases and in some locations to this day. By the mid-80s, two research groups had identified different viruses that seemed to be associated with or responsible for cases of this mysterious condition, and it was eventually determined in 1986 that they were actually the same virus, and that virus was designated HIV. HIV, short for Human Immunodeficiency Virus, is a retrovirus that, if left untreated, leads to Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, or AIDS, in about 50% of patients within 10 years of infection. So HIV is the virus, AIDS is a condition that someone with HIV can develop after their immune system is severely damaged by the infection. And there are a bunch of diagnostic differentiations that determine when someone has transitioned from one category to the other. But in general, folks with HIV will experience moderate flu or mono-like symptoms alongside swollen lymph nodes and rashes and throat problems and sores across their bodies in the early stages of infection. And as things progress, they develop opportunistic infections of the kind that can only really latch onto a human when their immune system is weakened or shut down. While in contrast, AIDS, arriving after the immune system is well and truly damaged, brings with it a slew of opportunistic infections and associated issues, the afflicted person potentially developing all sorts of cancers and sarcomas and persistent infections and extreme versions of the flu-like, mono-like symptoms that they may have suffered earlier on. We don't know for certain how and where HIV originated. And that's true of both kinds, as there is an HIV-1 and an HIV-2 virus, the former of which, HIV-1, accounts for most infections, and the latter of which is less common and less overall infectious. 
but both HIV types seem to have been transmitted to humans from non-human primates somewhere in west-central Africa in the early 20th century, possibly from chimpanzees in southern Cameroon. But that is pretty speculative, and there's some evidence that these diseases may have made the leap several times. So while there's a pretty good chance, based on what we know now, that the disease made it into humans and mutated approximately somewhere in that vicinity sometime in the early 20th century, possibly via chimps hunted and eaten by locals as bushmeat, we really don't know for certain. There are reports of what were probably HIV infections as far back as 1959 in the Belgian Congo, but that's a bit speculative too, and based on imperfect notes taken contemporaneously at the time. Back then though, and through the 1980s, folks who contracted HIV and who were not treated would typically die within 11 years of being infected, and more than half of those diagnosed with AIDS in the US from 1981 through 1992 died within two years of their diagnosis. Such a diagnosis was a death sentence, basically. It was a really horrible and scary time. Today, the outlook for folks who contract HIV is substantially better. The life expectancy of someone who contracts the virus and who is able to get treatment is about the same as someone who is not infected. The disease is not cured, but the level of HIV virus in the blood of a person receiving treatment is so small that it's no longer transmissible or even detectable. What I'd like to talk about today is a new therapy that's making those sorts of outcomes possible, how some few people have now been cured of HIV entirely, and what is on the horizon in this space. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Learn more about Let's Know Things, subscribe to receive free email updates, and or become a supporter to receive monthly bonus episodes at letsknowthings.com. Antiretroviral therapy, or ART, typically consists of a combination of drugs based on those that were originally combined in this way in 1996 by researchers who announced their findings at the International AIDS Conference in Vancouver. They called their approach Highly Active Antiretroviral Therapy, or HAART, and this combo was based on findings from earlier drugs that addressed one of HIV's seven stages of development. But because they all hit the exact same single stage, the virus was rapidly developing an immunity to them, and they were universally pretty toxic too, with horrible side effects. What's more, this drug cocktail increased patients' life expectancy by about 24 months on average, which is not nothing, about two years. But considering all those side effects, which included severe liver problems and anemia, the extra months of life generally were not very pleasant extra months. In 1995, a class of drugs called protease inhibitors were introduced, which prevented HIV from making copies of itself using the body's structural proteins. That combined with the effects of other existing retrovirals, which hindered the virus's ability to hijack the body's cells to make more of itself, turned out to be a substantial improvement over just one or the other approach. The announcement in 1996 was notable because the researchers involved were able to knock the viral load in their patients down to an undetectable level, and then keep it there, by using three drugs from each of those two antiviral classes, those two different approaches. So HAART was a major improvement over what came before, but it was still imperfect, 
deaths tied to HIV plummeted by 50% in the US and Europe in just three years. But the life expectancy of folks using this therapy was still quite low compared to other people. Someone who contracted HIV in their 20s and went on this therapy was still only expected to live till their early 50s. Way better than a two-year increase, but still plenty of room for improvement. In addition to that lifespan duration limitation, the HAART bundle of therapies was just really difficult to maintain. Some people experienced a dramatic redistribution of body fat, some developed heart arrhythmias or insulin resistance or peripheral neuropathy or lactic acidosis, which is basically a toxic buildup of acid that results from metabolism, which is usually cleared by the body naturally, but when it doesn't, it's potentially deadly. Anything less than absolutely perfect adherence to the treatment schedule was also potentially deleterious to the desired outcomes. It was not a forgiving regimen, with some of the drugs requiring three capsules be taken every eight hours, and there was a chance that if a portion of a dose of one drug was missed or not administered correctly or on time, the virus could develop an immunity to it and the whole thing would fall apart. Consequently, the HAART regimen was generally reserved until things got really bad, and that meant it did not have a very large effect on the impacted population, and those who did benefit from it suffered consequences alongside those benefits. The change in terminology from HAART to just ART arrived in 2001 when a drug called Viriad, the brand name for tenefovir disaproxyl, was released and added into the mix, replacing some of the most toxic and cumbersome of the previous therapies with a single pill per day, and one that came with far fewer and far less extreme side effects. In 2005, it was finally demonstrable with a bunch of data that beginning this type of therapy earlier rather than waiting until things get really bad was worth the trade-offs. Researchers showed that if folks received access to ART upon diagnosis, severe HIV-associated and non-HIV-associated illnesses were reduced by 61%. As of 2016, there was still an average life expectancy gap between folks with HIV who received early care and people who were not infected of about eight years, but that gap has been steadily closing with the introduction of new, easier-to-use, less side-effect-prone drugs. Drugs that tend to attack the virus at different stages, and which take different approaches to hindering and blocking it, alongside innovations in how the drugs are delivered, like introducing substances that are converted by the body into the desired drug, which massively cuts the requisite dosage, in turn lessening the strain on the body's organs, and the potential side effects associated with taking a higher dose of the drug itself. We've also seen the advent of fixed-dose combination drugs, which are exactly what they sound like. A single pill containing the entire combination of drugs one must take each day, which makes a combination therapy much easier to administer and stick with, which in turn has substantially reduced the risk of severe side effects and prevented mutations that might otherwise make a patient's virus more immune to some component of the drug cocktail. Some newer options just use two drugs, compared to the previous three or more, and most of these have been shown to be just as effective as the earlier, more bodily stressful combinations, and a recent 2021 drug is injectable rather than deliverable in pill form and can be administered just once a month. Though a version of this drug, sold under the name Cabanuva, has been approved for administration every other month. 
So things in this corner of the medical world are looking pretty good due to new approaches and innovations to existing therapy models. These models remain imperfect, but they're getting better every year, and contracting HIV is no longer a death sentence, nor does it mean you will always be infectious or even detectably infected. The amount of HIV virus in one's blood can be kept undetectably low for essentially one's entire life, so long as one is able to get on the right therapy or combination of therapies and stick with it. That said, the global HIV pandemic is far from over, and access to these drugs, many of which are pricey if you don't have insurance that will cover them, is not equally distributed. As of late 2022, the United Nations official numbers indicate that about 39 million people globally have HIV, about 1.3 million were infected in 2022, and about 630,000 died from AIDS-related illnesses that year. That said, of those 39 million or so who are infected, nearly 30 million are receiving some kind of antiretroviral therapy, and about 86% of people who are estimated to be infected know their status, so they can seek such therapies and or take other precautions to protect themselves and others. Though that also means about 5.5 million people globally have HIV and don't realize it. Here's a really remarkable figure, though. Among people who are infected and know they are infected, about 93% of them were virally suppressed as of 2022. That is astonishing. 93% of people who have HIV and are aware of it are on some kind of therapy that has allowed them to suppress the virus so that it is nearly undetectable. The difference between the two, by the way, is that suppressed means 200 copies of the HIV virus per milliliter of blood, while undetectable is generally considered to be less than 50 copies per milliliter. So huge leaps in a relatively short period of time, and a massive improvement in both duration and quality of life for folks who might otherwise suffer mightily and then die early because of this virus and its associated symptoms. That said, there are some interesting new approaches to dealing with HIV on the horizon, and some of them might prove to be even more impactful than this current batch of incredibly impactful ART options. As of September 2023, five people have been confirmed cured of HIV, not suppressed, not with viral loads at undetectable levels, cured. The first of these cured people, often referred to as the Berlin patient, received a stem cell transplant from a bone marrow donation database that contained a genetic mutation called CCR5 Delta 32, which makes those who have it essentially immune to HIV infection. Three months after he received the transplant and stopped taking ART, doctors were unable to find any trace of the virus in his blood. He died from cancer in 2020, but there didn't seem to be any HIV in his blood from when he received the stem cell transplant until he died. And that transplant happened in the early 2000s, and it was formally announced to the medical community in 2008. At least two other people, two that we know about anyway, have been cured of HIV using the same method. Though at the moment, at least, this option is severely limited as it requires that patients have a bone marrow match in a donor database and that one of those donors have that specific, relatively rare mutation. So with existing science and techniques, at least, this is unlikely to be a widespread solution to this problem, though a 2017 experiment used stem cells 
derived from umbilical cord blood from a baby that had that mutation to treat a woman's leukemia and cure her HIV. So there's a chance other approaches that make use of the same basic concept might be developed, opening this up to more people. Cancer drugs may also help some people with HIV. A drug that's been approved to treat several cancers called venetoclax seems to also bind to a protein that helps HIV-infected T-cells dodge the body's immune system and survive. And that realization has led to a series of experiments that showed HIV was suppressed in mice receiving this drug, though it bounced back a week later and two weeks later in mice receiving both this drug and ART once the administration of the drug stopped. This is unlikely to be a solution unto itself then, but there is a chance either an adjusted version of this drug or this drug in combination with other therapies might be effective. And there's a clinical trial testing the efficacy of venetoclax in human HIV patients at the end of this year and another in 2024. So we may soon know if it is safe and desirable to use this drug alongside ART. And that may in turn lead to a better understanding of how to amplify the drug's effects and or apply this method of hindering HIV from a different angle. And then CRISPR, the gene editing technology borrowed from bacteria that allows for the cutting and removing and adding of genetic information to other genetic information, has enabled the development of several new potential HIV cures, one of which, called EBT-101, basically enters the body, finds helper T cells, and then cuts out chunks of the HIV virus's DNA, which prevents it from being able to replicate itself or hide, re-emerging later after another treatment has suppressed it. The benefit of this approach is that it could kill the viral reservoirs that otherwise allow HIV to persist and pop back up in people who have undergone treatments, and a version of it that targets SIV, which is similar to HIV but found in non-human primates, performed exactly as they hoped it would in trials, finding and editing the targeted DNA, raising hopes that an HIV-targeted variation may manage similar wonders in human patients. This would be great if it ends up working, as one injection would then theoretically clear all HIV from a person's system in relatively short order. But the trials done so far have been small, and they've been done on monkeys. And because of the nature of the research, it is not clear the monkeys were cured of their disease, just that the treatment got where it was supposed to go, and it made some DNA edits. A human trial of EBT-101 will finish up in March of 2025, though the researchers plan to follow up with their subjects for up to 15 years following the trial to assess any long-term effects from their treatment, since CRISPR and this approach to messing with genes is still such a new thing. So while this may be a solution at some point, and a really good one, there's a chance it will not be a real deal available option for another decade minimum. So we've come a long way in a very short period of time with HIV and AIDS treatments, and the future is looking pretty good, with even more options and approaches on the horizon, including some actual cures alongside high-quality, actually usable treatments. But there's still room to grow. In terms of infection awareness, there's still distribution issues for some of these drugs, and there's still a fair bit of prejudice, the consequence of ignorance and historical misunderstandings and biases, keeping folks and institutions from doing as much as they otherwise could in many parts of the world. So a lot to be proud of, a lot to look forward to, but still plenty of room for improvement.
across the board. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Allergic, Our Irritated Bodies in a Changing World by Teresa McPhail. As somebody who has suffered for my entire life from all sorts of allergies, indoor allergies, outdoor allergies, thankfully no food allergies or medicine allergies, but I'm allergic to pretty much everything in the natural world, this book was quite interesting in explaining allergies to begin with because our understanding of this and the science behind it has changed pretty substantially over the past few decades, but also why allergies in those of us who have always suffered have been getting worse and why some people who never seemed to have allergies before are suddenly developing them. And there's a lot of different variables that contribute to this emergence and amplification of allergies, a lot of it to do with our environment, a lot of it to do with the things we are putting into those environments, but also climate change and similar large-scale impacts that are adjusting in significant and very subtle ways essentially everything about the natural world. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Allergic by Teresa McPhail. You can subscribe to receive email updates, find show notes and other such content, and support this show financially, receiving additional bonus episodes as a thank you at letsknowthings.com. Learn more about me and my work at colin.io. Subscribe to my other news-focused podcast, One Sentence News, wherever you get your pods, or at onesentencenews.com. And say howdy on social media. I'm at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter, and Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.